0: Hey, this is Pastor Sam, and thank you for listening to the Central Church podcast. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. And to keep up with everything happening in our faith community, visit centralchurch.cc. So uh, we found some funny videos to kind of relieve some of the uh, stress and pressure from this topic because uh, it's it's you know it's it's crazy and it's it's super heavy and super weighted, and people are super passionate. About it, um, on both sides of the coin, both sides of the aisle. However, you want to say it, it's 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 a crazy time uh, every election year. But I just want to start off by saying that pastors and politics don't mix. Okay, pastors and politics don't mix. It really, really irks me when pastors use their platform to talk about politics. It really does. I mean, it just like it's one of my pet peeves. It's it's up there with like prosperity gospel. Right where people are like, hey, you need to be rich because Jesus wants you to be rich. And it's like, I just want to punch you in the face. But um, Because a lot of times when pastors use their platform for politics, they're trying to mesh the principles of Jesus with the principles of politics. And it's like, what? How is that even in the same realm or, or even conversation? And so I just want to start this thing off by saying that I am, first of all, that I need a new microphone, because this thing is messed up. Is that better? All right, I want to start this thing off by saying that I hear myself breathe, and that is, it's in my beard. My beard's never been this long. What do you guys think, huh? All right, so I want to start this thing off by saying I am, this is going to drive me crazy. I need a different mic. Uh, I am no expert on politics, okay? I am politically ignorant, Self-proclaimed. Look at this good-looking guy bringing me a mic. I'm a diva. I'm a diva. Thank you, sir. Um, and it's on, and I just turned it off. So, I, oh, man, that even sounds better. I sound more powerful, huh? I love it. Um, I'm politically ignorant, okay? I am not some political expert. Uh, it's not a passion of mine. It's not a hobby of mine. It's barely even an interest of mine, right? It, it's, in this election, it's very entertaining, And so therefore I've I've been, you know, keeping up with the entertainment of side side of things. The bad lip reading videos are my favorite part of the political season because I'm just it's just not one of those things for me. But today we're launching a new series that we're calling Jesus for president. And so I want you to recognize and realize the tongue-in-cheekness of this series. That we don't literally think that Jesus should be president. Okay, And so I want, uh, that's going to become very ultimately clear, very crystal clear as this series goes on, that, That's just the chasm that exists between the way of Jesus and the whole political system and the whole way that it all works. And so please, I just want to clarify the tongue-in-cheekness of our series being called Jesus for president. It's almost like an oxymoron, right? And so just throw that out there. Now, today what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time in the Old Testament. Because like I said, pastors and politics don't miss don't mix. And so if you thought that the Jesus for President series was gonna be about politics, you're completely wrong. We're talking about Jesus, because that's what we're supposed to be talking about in a church, right? And so we're going to look at the Old Testament. And we're going to go back before there were governments, before there were political systems, before there were, you know, empires, before there was anything even remotely close to kings and presidents and all of these different things. We're going to go way, 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 way back. And we're going to look at the birth of this empirical rule, the birth of this idea that's kind of brought us to the current political season. And we're going to look at that. And then we're also going to look at sort of God's design and God's call for his people and see if we can't reconcile the two ideas in our own hearts, in our own lives. Okay? So let me pray really quick, and then we'll jump right into this. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the time of worship that we got to spend together. I thank you that that you are here, and I thank you that you are good. And God, I pray this morning that as we spend some time in this space, just aiming to connect with you and aiming to, for you to speak to us and opening ourselves up to that, I pray that you would meet with us. I pray that we would encounter you in a real way. And I pray that our hearts and our lives would be changed as a result. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. So listen, here's the deal. We're trekking through a lot of the Old Testament, a lot of stuff really fast. So you're going to have to kind of trek with me, and then I'll give you kind of the main point in a few minutes, okay? So this the whole thing starts off in Genesis chapter 1. That's a logical place to start, right? Genesis chapter 1. And this is before there were any politics, before there was any poverty, before there were wars and pollution and government and, um, you know, empire and Supreme Court justices that were super ultra important and all this. It was before all of that. This is back at creation. When man was in the garden, mankind was in the garden in communion with God. And so it started off us in communion with God in the garden. And then you fast forward to Genesis chapter three, where Eve was tempted by the, the, um, the serpent, right, and buckled, and then she got Adam, and then they, they partook, and then sin enters the picture, right? And it's all downhill from this point. And so the sin entered the world, and then you get to Genesis chapter four. And this is where civilization began, right? Have you guys heard of the story of Cain and Abel? It was these two brothers, right? And Cain was a farmer, and Abel was a shepherd. And so Cain brought his crops to be sacrificed to God, but they were just some crops. They weren't like the creme de la creme. They weren't like the best crops. And so he brings that, and God's like, okay, cool. And then, and then Abel comes and brings like the best of the best of his sheep, of his flock and gives them to God as a sacrifice. And God is ultra pleased with Abel's sacrifice. And so Cain gets just furious and livid and he's just super jealous, blinded by anger. And he comes and he kills his brother, right? You guys have probably heard this story before. And so he kills his brother. God becomes displeased with the whole thing, scatters it. And then in Genesis chapter four, verse 17, it says, then Cain's wife became pregnant and gave birth to a son and they named him Enoch. When Cain founded a city, he named it Enoch after his son. And so as far as we know, this is the birth of civilization, the first city. It was named Enoch. And so the inaugural act of civilization, of life outside of the garden, life outside of communion with God, was murder. That was the inaugural act of the whole thing. It was murder, and it was, it was jealousy, and it was hatred. And so civilization kind of takes place. And then two chapters later, in Genesis chapter 6, we have the flood. Is this on? Is this on? What is going on this morning, guys? Huh? Yeah, it's weird. And this thing's driving my ears crazy. We'll figure it out. So in Genesis chapter 6, so this happens in Genesis chapter 4, right? This is the birth of the whole civilization. And then Genesis chapter six, the flood takes place. And so just two in two chapters, they've gone from founding a city out of murder and jealousy and rage and anger and all this stuff to God hitting the reset button. That's how fast this thing went downhill. That's how fast this thing just continued to progress and progress and progress and progress and progress. And then we go five chapters later to Genesis chapter 11. After the reset button, after the flood, after all that stuff, we have the Tower of Babel. And so the Tower of Babel was a time of political unity. This is when everybody comes together, and they're like, yeah, let's work together. Yeah, let's do this thing. And so they urged the people to build a tower to the heavens. And it was this idea of a monument to their personal greatness. And so they had bought into the empirical mentality. They had bought into this concept that their faith was in buildings and politics and humanity and personal greatness. And so all this stuff takes place in Genesis chapter 11. And so God sees all this stuff happening. This is kind of the story unfolding. And then in Genesis chapter 12, God calls his people. In Genesis chapter 12, God reaches out to this dude named Abram, who later later he changes his name to Abraham, who is Father Abraham, had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. He goes, I'm one of them, and so are you, so let's just place the right? Same guy. And so in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says this. It says, Then the Lord told Abram, Leave your country, your relatives, and your father's house and go to the land that I will show you. I will cause you to become the father of a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and I will make you a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And so after the Babel Project, right, in Genesis chapter 11... After this unity of political unity, after this faith in humanity, faith in self, let's all work together. Let's all do this thing. It's like the the, the pinnacle of the empirical mindset. This whole empire thing of like, yeah, build great buildings and monuments to our greatness. After that, in chapter 11, God kind of goes for the antithesis of this mentality to birth his nation. He goes to Abraham, who is homeless. He says, leave your home. He's homeless, he's small, he's powerless, and he says, these are the people I'm going to use. These are the people I'm going to use to birth, give birth to my nation. Not your empirical mindset, not what you guys think is so great and powerful and wonderful. He says, no, 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 no. It's completely different. And so these people historically become the Hebrews or the Jews as you read through the Bible, the people of Israel. This is God's chosen people. And they were homeless, small, and powerless, and he decides to use them. And so then by the time the book of Exodus comes into play, you know, it goes Genesis, Exodus. We're tracing through the the people of Israel. We're covering a lot of history in a little bit of time. But by the time Exodus comes into play, right, the people of Israel have found themselves suffering from the ugliness of empire. They were slaves to the empire. They were slaves in Egypt. And so God uses this guy named Moses. You may have heard this story. And Moses comes in and, you know, the plagues and the the dance with Pharaoh that he has, this, this political move, trying to free the people from slavery of the empire. And so he leads them out of slavery into the wilderness. But at this point, the people of Israel are not led by a president or by a Congress or by a Senate or by a king or anything like that. At this point, they're led by prophets like Deborah and Samuel and these different people who are mouthpieces for God. They would go into the temple and and meet with God and then come back and say, this is what God wants us to do with our people. This is where God wants us to go. This is how God wants us to be led and all of this sort of thing. And so they're out there and uh, Moses comes and he takes the people of Israel out of slavery from the empire, out of Egypt, and they're wandering in the desert. And then in Exodus chapter 16, verse three, it says this, oh, that we were back in Egypt. So he removes the people from the bondage and ugliness and, and, and slavery of the empire, and they experience this freedom, and they get to a point where they say, man, if we were just back in the empire, if we were just back in slavery, at least there we had food, right? At least there we had this. At least there we had that. And have you ever heard um, the, 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 the saying, you can take the dog out of the fight, but you can't take the fight out of the dog? You guys ever, ever heard that before? It's the same kind of mentality that was taking place in the people of Israel. It, was, you, it takes a few days to get out of the empire, but it takes a lifetime to get the empire out of us. Right? It's this idea that we're so ingrained by the empire and the way that things work that that's how we crave for that, even when we're experiencing freedom from the slavery of that. And so the people um, are, are, are traveling, and they say, you know what? We want a king. People say, we want a king. They're looking at these different nations and they're saying, we want to be like them. All the, na- all the other nations have a king. All the other nations have a, a dominant leader in an em- empirical society. That's what we want. And Samuel's coming back to him saying, guys, no, 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 but dude, 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 you do not want that. You do not want that. They're like, yes, we want that. And so Samuel's frustrated. And Samuel's like, what are we going to do? Samuel's the, the prophet at the time who's, who's leading the people of Israel. He's like, what are we going to do? So Samuel goes and he warns them. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 11 through 18, he's saying, You guys don't want a king. That's not God's best for you. That's not the way that God has called us to live. That is not the way that God wants us to rule ourselves and to interact with one another. But the people are super persistent about it because they want to be like the other nations. And so then in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Verses six through nine, God gives a response to Samuel. Samuel goes to God and he's like, God, they're asking for a king. And you, God, we're on the same page. You and I both know this is not what they need. And then God's response is outlined in verses six through nine of first Samuel chapter eight. And it says, Samuel was very upset with their request and went to the Lord for advice. Do as they say, the Lord replied, for it is me they are rejecting, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually forsaken me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about how a king will treat them. And so God gives them a king because they had their eyes on everybody else, seeing how everybody else did it, and where everybody else was voting for, what everybody else was saying was the right thing to do. And they took their eyes off God and they said, we want to be like them. We want to do what they're doing. We want a a king just like everybody else has a king. And so God gives him a king and guess what happens? King after king after king after king after king. Corruption, slavery, wars, political just messes, murder, destruction. All this stuff just continues to happen king after king. Time after time after time, the people of God settled for the promises of the empire over the dreams and visions and direction of God. They settled for the promises of the empire over the dreams of God. And so it just kept happening, and it was this crazy, crazy cycle. But here's what's, here's what's so crazy. God operates in almost the complete opposite of the empire. It's like he flips the whole thing upside down on us. And we look at it and we go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Everybody else is doing it this way. Everyone else is going about it that way. And God does it completely different because even back in the day, the empire was all about stallions and armies and power and glitz and glamor and they even had hashtags that said winning, you know? I mean, it was, it was the whole deal. But then God comes up and he says, there's power in weakness. There's power in weakness. It's not about dominating and winning and having the biggest and the best and the baddest. God says, no, 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 no. That's not. That's not how I roll. I mean, look at the story in Judges chapter six with uh, Jericho, right? He says, no, you don't have to go in there and fight that battle with armies. He says, go in there and sing and shout praises, and I'll take care of it. And that's what he does totally flip-flops the whole empirical approach. The empire would say, oh, let's have a strategy, let's have our armies, let's surround the city, let's do our thing, let's attack, let's make this thing happen. And God says, no, 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 listen, I want you to go and I want you to sing praises and I want you to shout and I'm gonna take care of the rest. Or you go to Judges chapter seven where we hear about Gideon and Gideon comes with his army and he's got 32,000 people and God says, no, 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 that's too much. That's an empirical approach. Less. So Gideon comes back, he's like, I got 10,000. He's like, no, 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 that's too much less. So Gideon comes back and has 300 and God says, okay, I can work with that. I can work with that because I got you. I'm going to take care of it. It's not this empirical. Let's win, 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 win all the time. That's not the approach. It's more a posture of dependence on God. And he says, I, I got you. And then David to be King in first Samuel chapter 16 through 18, you know, Samuel's going looking for the King and he sees all these strapping young men and all these brothers that the empire would say, that's definitely the guy. That's who we need. That's who's going to be in charge. And, Sam, and God tells Samuel, he's like, no, it's none of these dudes. Samuel's like, you got somebody else? He says, well, yeah, David, he's out there with the flocks. He's the youngest. He's, he's not the guy. God says, that's the guy. That's the guy I'm going to use. It's like he flips the whole thing upside down. It's like this paradoxical approach. It's almost humorous when you really go through Scripture and think about it. Right? I mean, you think about Moses, the stuttering prophet who's going to be the voice of God. God comes to Moses and says, You're gonna do this. And he's like, God says, Yep, you're my guy. It's like, well, what? How in the world? Or 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 the barren old lady who's gonna become the mother of the nation, and Sarah, who's Abraham's wife, she was super old and had no kids and couldn't have kids. And God was like, Yep, you're the one. You're the one I'm gonna use. You're like, dude, that's funny, but for real, for real. What's gonna happen here? He's like, no, really. That's who I'm going to use, or the shepherd boy who's going to become the king. David is like the last pick in the world that you would think is going to be the guy, and God says, that's the guy. Because you see, God is calling a peculiar people. All throughout scripture, he encourages us and tells us and reveals this story to us, saying, I'm calling a peculiar people. I'm calling people who are set apart, who are different than the norm." Right? In, in uh, Numbers 23, verse 9, it says, I see a people who live by themselves set apart from other nations. God is calling us to be different from the status quo. God's calling us to be different than the common thought. God's calling us to be different than the empirical and political norm. God's calling us to be different. And so God established these laws, as you're continuing the story of the people of Israel, God established these laws that were to be a circumcision of the heart, right? There was actual physical circumcision as well as kind of an outward, hey, this is how, I don't know how you even check that, but that's another topic for another day. But he called the, he he set up this law that was like tons of different rigorous outlines of saying this is how you have to be cool with God. And it was this idea of cutting away the stuff of the earth so that you can be set apart for the things of God. And so he lays out this giant law for them to follow. It was to aid and to guide them so they wouldn't slip back into the worldly empirical mindset and way of life. So he could say, stop looking at everybody else to see what the right thing to do is and the right way to live is and put your eyes on me. Follow me. And so he lays out this huge, extensive law for them to follow. And so after wandering for 40 years, they reached the promised land right? Moses takes them out of Egypt. They're wandering through the the desert for 40 years and they finally reach the promised land. And when this happens, there's this new set of laws and this new economy that takes place. And this is almost like, hey guys, you know, you've been following the empire. You've been following their way of doing things. And he says, no, 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 listen, this is the way you should be doing things. This is the way that it should go down, right? And so he gives this like new economy, not a reformed empirical economy, He doesn't take what they already have and say, well, let's change it and alter it a little bit to make it more Christian. He says, this is a new way to do things. This is completely different. And, um, you know, a biblical scholar named Chad Myers, he calls this stuff the Sabbath laws. And you know what the Sabbath laws were? We're going to look at them here for a second. The first one, they welcome strangers and illegal immigrants. (laughs) Don't get mad at me. I didn't say that. The Sabbath laws said that. They welcomed strangers and illegal immigrants. They, um, they, allowed, they, they made room for this thing called gleaning, which is where after you have, have taken care of your crops and you've brought stuff in for your business and for your family, anything that's extra, the poor were allowed to come and just take for free because it was to help them and to aid them. And so that was part of their laws. They made sure that the most vulnerable of society were looked after. The orphans and the elderly and the widows were ultra important. It was very important for them to rally around them and to take care of them and to elevate them into society and to make sure that they were okay. And there were clear warnings. This is what's crazy. There were clear warnings against financial interest or creating debt. It was this idea that the person giving a loan with a high percent return was just as much a criminal as the bank robber. Because your goal is to not get rich off the back of someone else's suffering. And so that's not the way to do things. And so there were laws against that. And then every seventh year, I think you guys are going to love this one, there was the year of the Jubilee. Every seventh year, you know what they did? They took off work for a year. That's what, yeah, that's what's up. Sign me up, I'm in. Mean, I don't know about that immigrant thing, but no work, I'm in. Right? <laughs> they took a whole year off of work. But when they did this, their fields kept growing and the food kept coming. And so you know what the deal was? That was free for the taking for all the poor. Anybody could come to your fields and they could take whatever they wanted. It was the year of jubilee, a year of celebration, a year for everyone to partake in the goodness of God. I mean, that's totally different. Any debt that had accrued over the past six years was erased in the year of jubilee. You get to reset it, starting back fresh, at zero, and it was to keep the gap between the rich and the poor minimal. Because that's not God's economy. That's not what God has called his people for. That's not what he's called them to. In Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 4, it says there should be no poor among you. That wasn't a joke. That wasn't like, ha, ha, ha there shouldn't be any poor people, ha, 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 It wasn't just dinner conversation. He says, yo, there should be no poor among you. You should be taking care of people and helping people and sharing with people. And then every 49th and 50th year, which was seven times seven, was the Jubilee of Jubilees. And in the Jubilee of Jubilees, they would release each community member from debt. All your debts are wiped away. Clean slate, returning any land that was forfeited or taken over to the original owners. And it was the freeing of all slaves. It was like a regularly scheduled revolution every 50 years was, hey, we're resetting this thing. Some of you guys have made poor decisions. Some of you guys have made good decisions. But now we're all back to zero. Because we are all equal in the eyes of the Lord. And so it was a completely different approach. But the sad thing about this whole thing, the sad part is that even with all these laws and provisions, the people of God still didn't fully catch the vision of God. They still didn't get it, and they were still looking elsewhere, and they consistently allowed themselves to follow the patterns of other nations. They consistently allowed themselves to be influenced by the empire, and they fell short of the dream of God, but God's relentless, and God didn't give up. And so next week, we're going to look, and God sends them a new king, but again, it's upside down and backwards. It's completely different. So we're going to spend all next week looking at how Jesus shows up on the scene and changes everything. Everything. And his kingdom is like no other kingdom. And I say that, just wait until next. I'm so excited to talk about this stuff. Because he uses the terms of the empire to mean something totally different. He takes all this terminology and the way that people view other kingships and other kingdoms. And he says, yeah, we're going to use that same language. But it means something totally different. Completely different. And so we're going to look at that next week. But this morning... Maybe you're in here and you're listening to the story of the Hebrews and the Israelites and you're saying, man, those dudes are straight idiots. Like, they are dumb. God is pursuing them. God is is making these provisions for them. God is reaching out to them. And time after time after time, they're rejecting him and chasing the empire. Time after time after time, they're rejecting him and chasing politics and chasing all these different things and not chasing after God. But I think if we step back and we look at ourselves, hello. I think that we would be amazed at the similarities between us and the people of Israel, the Hebrews. We look at them and say, how could they be so dumb chasing the empire time and time again and rejecting God when God is chasing them and God is setting provisions for them and God wants to be in relationship with them? How could they be so stupid? But how many of us are slaves to debt? How many of us are slaves to jobs that we hate. If we're being honest, are we living for the empire? Because we're working super hard to buy things that don't matter to impress people we don't even like. Are we slaves to the empire just like the people of Israel were? I mean, we're working longer and longer hours to spend less time with our kids and our family and spending less time on the things that are really important just to keep up with the status quo, to have the car, to have the house, to have the latest tech, to have the latest clothes, to live in the right neighborhoods, to do the right things, to have all of this stuff. Are we living for the empire? Just like the people of Israel were? Because it's easy to step back and point fingers and say, these people are idiots. God's chasing them. God wants relationship with them, and they keep chasing after a king. They keep chasing after the empire. They keep chasing after what the other nations have and what the other people have. How could they do that? How could they be so blind? But then when we step back and say, oh, wait a second. Let me just get real with myself for a minute and ask ourselves, are we living for God truly, or are we living for the empire? Are we chasing after God Or are we chasing after the empire? Maybe it's something a little less tangible than than that, right? Maybe it's something a little less tangible. Maybe it's that God is trying to have relationship with you and deepen your relationship and have communion with you more than just on Sunday mornings, that God is chasing after you and wants to actually be in relationship with you. And he's trying to chase in your heart and draw you in, but you're refusing to let go of certain relationships that you have in your life that are keeping you from that. You're refusing to go and, and, and release yourself from the TV show that you're addicted to so you can spend time with him. Maybe it's something a little less tangible than you know, a job that we hate and a career that we hate and time. And all. Maybe it's God just wants relationship with you. But we're choosing things of the empire to spend our time, to spend our money, and to spend our effort on rather than choosing God. And so maybe he's calling you in that direction. And many of us, were like, yeah, we're willing to come out of the empire. We're willing to step out of that but are we willing to let the empire come out of us? We're willing to step out of the empire and say, man, that's a great idea, that's a great concept, I would love to do that. But are we willing to change our perspective enough to let the empire come out of us? And these are hard questions for us to kind of surf through and and, and, and understand. But this morning, what I want to do is I want to encourage you to learn from the people of Israel. Look at them and say, Man, they're so dumb. But then say, wait a second, that's me too. And learn from their mistakes and say, I don't want to be dumb like them. I don't want that. Right? But leave and do something about it. Don't just say, yeah, man, that was, that was heavy. Yeah, let's go eat some donuts. But actually kind of allow this to simmer a little bit because here's the deal. God is calling us to live as a peculiar people. God is calling us be set apart. God wants all of us. He wants all of us. When we wake up in the morning, He doesn't want us thinking about uh, how much money we're going to make that day and how many bills we have that day and how, how, how many hours we're going to spend at work that day and, and how are we going to drive what kind of car we're going to drive that day and what are we going to wear that Do you think that's what God wants in the forefront of our minds at all times? Or do you think that's the empire? I mean really ask yourselves, what are you living for? Are you living for that stuff or are you living for and is everything through the filter of God because we need to step back and see who or what we're serving with our time, with our money, with our lives. How are we conducting ourselves and who are we conducting ourselves for? Because God is relentlessly, relentlessly pursuing us, but it's up to us to respond. And so in this political season we're sitting here and we're saying, "Man, Oh, if this person gets elected, it's the end of the world. If that person gets elected, it's the end of the world. The Supreme Court justices and blah. Guys, are you living for God? Or are you living for the empire? Who controls your destiny, God or the empire? I mean, really? We're becoming so divided and so polarized. Is that the empire or is that God. These are all questions we need to be asking ourselves in this political season. These next four weeks, it's going to get intense. It's going to get hardcore in the media and in in the newspaper and on Facebook and on Instagram and everywhere. It's going to be coming at you from all angles. And so we need to know, are we going to keep our eyes on the empire? Are we going to keep our eyes on God? Are we going to be living for the empire? Are we going to be living for God? Are we going to invest in the empire? Or are we going to invest in God? Because God is relentlessly pursuing us It's just up to us to respond to that. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for your relentless pursuit of us. I thank you so much that time and time again, no matter how many times we mess up, we take our eyes off you, we look in the wrong direction, that you're always, always, always there with arms wide open ready to take us back in God this morning if we're having just a total reformation in our brains of the way we're living life if we're in here thinking oh my gosh yes i'm ruled by the empire i'm not ruled by god i'm serving the empire and i'm still not serving god i pray that you send your holy spirit to wrap his arms around us and comfort us and let us feel your hope and your love and your grace and your mercy to embrace us. God, I pray that you would send us supernatural wisdom to know what to do and how to do it, but also some supernatural courage to have the strength to stand up and actually do something about it. God, I pray this morning, if you're just calling us into deeper relationship with you, and you're calling us to focus on you, and to turn down the noise of the empire in our life, and turn up the volume of your voice, pray that the Holy Spirit would guide us through that discussion right now as we spend some time just responding to you. God, I thank you for sending your son. I thank you that it's even an option for us to be in relationship with you. God, I pray this morning that every person in this room would do some serious business, some serious self-evaluation Figure out where we stand before an almighty God who pursues us. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Central Church Podcast. We hope this has encouraged you, challenged you, and that you experience true life change. Make sure you head over to iTunes to rate, review, and subscribe. And to keep up with everything happening in our faith community, visit centralchurch.cc.